The Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. Dr. Evan Walgama is a head and neck oncology surgeon. That means he specializes in treating any cancer from the collarbone to the base of the brain. In the past, head and neck cancer surgeons tended to see older patients in poorer health who were often smokers. But the demographics have shifted. Dr. Walgama's practice is following this national trend. Younger, healthier non-smokers are filling his waiting room. The culprit is HPV, human papilloma virus. Sufferers often develop tumors in the mouth, tongue, and throat. Surgery is sometimes a good option, and in other cases, chemotherapy and radiation are better. Dr. Walgama shares his decision-making with patients. I'm a surgeon, but not everybody needs surgery, he says. Listen to this podcast to learn how Dr. Walgama deals with tricky tumors in a delicate region of the body. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Anthony. Now, I ask every one of our otolaryngologists when they come on, what is an otolaryngologist? Because I love saying that word so much. Yeah, it's, you know, we have a name problem in our specialty because otolaryngology is, is too complicated. Nobody likes that. Um, ENT is, is what most people use. And, um, you know, if I meet somebody at a, at a party and I say I'm an ENT, they think I drive an ambulance. Um, they think I'm an EMT. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, we, we do have a problem. Uh, head and neck surgery is, is another name, but that uh, sometimes refers to my subspecialty, which is head and neck cancer surgery, which is a subspecialty of otolaryngology. Now, an otolaryngologist is not necessarily a surgeon, or is he or she? An otolaryngologist is a surgeon by training. Okay. And some of us do more surgery than others. So um, uh, I do a lot of head and neck cancer. And so a lot of um, uh, those patients need surgery, but uh, general otolaryngology is often not surgical. So this is common that people might think that they're going to see an EMT and, um, you know, they're going to do some kind of allergy or kind of medical treatments for sinuses or some, you know, hearing issues, earwax, um, so there's, there's general ENT, which is often not surgical, but within the subspecialties, there's uh, a lot of complex, uh, you know, procedures that, uh, we all get training in and, and some of us dive into in a more uh, rigorous way, including cancer surgeries and skull-based sur- surgeries for, uh, for tumors and cochlear implants for hearing and, uh, facial plastic surgeries. So there's a, it's a, it's a broad, uh, field. Uh, that's, you know, kind of organized by this anatomical region. So that's one thing that makes us unique. You know, we define ourselves not by the cardiovascular system or, you know, uh, the, the urinary tract, but really by what's between the clavicles and the base of the skull. So, that's, so between that's your, your collarbone and, and your, your brain. eyes and your, your brain. brain. <laughs> okay. That's your region. That's my region. That's it. And all that Latin in that term specifies that region probably that's correct otolaryng yeah okay so tell us how you chose to specialize here uh well you know uh people go into medical school and they they have all kinds of ideas about what medicine is and what they want to do and 
uh, you know, coming in, I didn't know that I wanted to be a surgeon. In fact, uh, whenever I was younger, I didn't want to be a doctor at all. Uh, my dad is an internal medicine doctor. And uh, I admired what he did, but I, I, I was never told, oh, you need to follow in your father's footsteps, which is very strange for South Asian men. But, uh, but I wasn't. And so I went to um, uh, undergrad. I was actually a philosophy major. And uh, about halfway through, Where was that? Uh, UT Austin, University of Texas. In Austin. Okay. Uh, I'm from Texas originally. And uh, about halfway through my studies, I realized that, you know, philosophy wasn't going to be a career for me, that it was something that was kind of fun when you're, you know, a late teenager, early 20s, but that I needed to find something to do. And, and so I started uh, taking some pre-med classes and, and it really just kind of took off from there. No kidding. So you uh, started doing that while you were undergrad, taking the pre-med. Right. right. Okay. And then yeah. what? And then went to medical school in Dallas, uh, okay. UT Southwestern, and uh, did stayed on, did a five-year residency in prolangology uh, and, and did a lot of time uh, taking care of patients, uh, kind of uh, underserved and poor patients in Dallas at, uh, at Parkland Hospital, uh, which is where you know, JFK was taken. Mm. Uh, you know, after he was assassinated and, and is, uh, you know, a, a well-known kind of research institute uh, in Texas and, and nationally as well. Um, after that, I, I uh, moved to California, did a fellowship in sinus and skull base at Stanford and uh, practiced for a few years in that, but really uh, decided that I wanted to uh, kind of pivot and fine tune my practice and focus on uh, all tumors in the head and neck, and not just uh, tumors in the skull base, which is what PNI is really known for, but uh, these tumors are quite rare. And so uh, it's hard to, uh, to build a whole career off of just uh, skull-based tumors. And so for me, it makes more sense to have a more broad uh, take on head and neck cancer and focus not only on rare tumors that form at the interface between the brain and the sinuses or the brain and the eye, but also tongue cancers, uh, tonsil and throat cancers, uh, advanced skin cancers, thyroid cancers. These are all things that I see uh, and are you know, things that are much more common in, in, uh, in our population. Does skull base, that includes pituitary cancers, correct? It does. You know, those are, those are really in the purview of the neurosurgeons. Uh, so they're, they're collaborative. And at PNI, it's a collaborative um, care, but really the neurosurgeon uh, kind of takes the lead on some of the decision-making and, and, you know, surveillance and, and decision on when to operate and, and uh, you know, which approach to take. Um, we are, uh, it's a multi-specialty thing because you approach those through the sinuses. So uh, the neurosurgeons will ask me to help them with these cases. And as a experienced sinus surgeon, I am, you know, able to kind of open things up widely for them, give them good exposure to the base of the skull right on the other side uh, of which is the pituitary gland and also to help them with the reconstruction by, you know, rotating flaps, uh, nasal tissues to, to give a vascularized uh, watertight uh, reconstruction. So it's something that, uh, you know, really at all the major centers across the, in North America and really um, internationally is usually a collaboration between polarology and neurosurgery. And, uh, you know, the head and neck cancer program uh, at PNI is, is really built up out of the extraordinary strength and experience that our skull-based program has because you know, Dan Kelly and Chester Griffiths have really built such a robust uh, kind of world-famous program. It allows us to expand into things like head and neck cancer and orbital tumors and things that 
are kind of peripherally related to that. So it's something that really makes uh, our program unique. Uh, most places build a head and neck cancer program because head and neck cancer is a lot more prevalent. And, you know, they eventually hire a school-based person who works with the neurosurgeons. But really, our, our program formed the other way. So it's, a, it's really a unique uh, kind of uh, uh, launching point. So it's more, um, you know, kind of top-down. <laughs> top-down, anatomically, top-down. Yeah, anatomically, at least. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, you've been at PNI for how long? About nine months. So you're pretty new. Fairly new. And are you enjoying it? Uh, I am really enjoying it. Uh, so I am the first um, head and neck, kind of dedicated head and neck cancer surgeon that uh, St. John's, which is the main hospital that I practice out of in Santa Monica, has ever had. So they have a um, ever. well-established cancer institute. Um, you're asking me a question? No. No, that, so ever. This is like... Yeah, this is new. So the, the Cancer Institute has been here for, for decades and it's, it's storied. It's got a lot of history to it. Uh, there was a guy named Donald Morton who, uh, who really built the place, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, he ran some uh, you know, very well-known uh, high-impact studies on melanoma and really uh, you know, developed this whole concept of sentinel lymph node biopsy, which is something that is you know, now standard of care for many types of uh, you know, skin cancer, melanoma patients. And, uh, Wait, and, and is, that he, a, is that a type of biopsy to, de- to determine the severity of the cancer? What is it? Basically, yeah. So basically, it's a, it's, the idea is that instead of, uh, let's say you get a skin cancer you know, on your side of your face, instead of doing a full neck dissection where you know, make a huge incision all along, you know, uh, the side of your neck and take out all the lymph nodes and have a pathologist slice them in half and say, is there a melanoma or not? Uh, he developed a technique where um, you basically inject the tumor uh, with a marker, uh, nuclear medicine study type marker. You get a scan and shows you where um, that specific tumor is draining. So it pinpoints one or two lymph nodes. So then you come in, you make a small incision and instead of you know taking out all the lymph nodes, you really focus on those one or two or three or four lymph nodes that are draining the tumor. And instead of the pathologist slicing it in half and saying is there melanoma or not, they slice it in eighths or tenths or twelfths, you know, and really give it a detailed uh, look. So it's it's uh, it's more precise and um, it it does give it a lot of good prognostic information about you know, whether there's any microscopic spread of disease. So not only melanoma uh, and breast cancers and other cancers in the body, this is a, a, a now kind of a standard of care uh, technique, but it really, a lot of the work was pioneered here at the, the Cancer Institute. So your point being that this is a, a storied institution. That's right, that's right. Happen to not have somebody in your position, so. Right, yeah, I mean, it's a place that has, is, is you know, very well known in the community for uh, the brain tumor work and melanoma, and neurology, and, and the breast pro- program, and probably you know, several others. But head and neck cancer has, has never really been included on that, on that list. And so, um, you know, traditionally, these you know, patients were, were sent out, and they you know, went to you know, the big hospitals and academic centers around town, and, and patients, uh, you know, that, that was kind of all their only option. And so, uh, you know, it's really... Uh, a new thing that we're offering these kind of tertiary um, types of cancer care, you know, comprehensive program in a community hospital that patients, you know, a lot of patients like coming to St. John's and, and it's very uh, kind of patient friendly. And, but, you know, patients can get a private practice uh, kind of experience, but also get 
kind of academic level care. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Tell us what um, your average week looks like in terms of procedures or your average month. Like, I mean, you know, that's a actually a pretty big region of the body with lots of interesting structures. I imagine you see a, a pretty wide variety. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a wide variety. Uh, I mean, this uh, this week, to give you an example, we have a, um, a a tongue cancer. So it's a lateral tongue cancer that's going to get reconstructed with the free flap. And so, uh, what does that know, mean? A lateral? Yeah. So uh, this it's actually the, the thing about this case. It's you know, so unique and also kind of so terrible is that it's a thirty year old guy, you know, younger than me, who um, who has developed this tongue cancer, which is typically something that you don't get in your thirties at all, especially not when you're three, zero, you know, 30 years old, but he's, he's a non-smoker and, 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 you know, kind of one of these people with, you know, really bad luck that, you know, we don't have a kind of thoroughgoing molecular uh, understanding of why this happened. But um, so, yeah, uh, this case is going to be done. Uh, you know, I'm the cancer surgeon, so I kind of direct this kind of multi-specialty care and have them seen by all the appropriate people that, need to be involved, which in headache cancer is a lot of people, you know, it's a speech and speech language pathologist, he helps in speech and swallowing. Uh, my reconstructive surgeon, Dr. Kochar, who's going to perform the free flap, which means transferring tissue from one part of the body to reconstruct the tongue. So you take something that's a little, you know, less critical, such as the side of the thigh or some tissue from the arm, and he actually comes in and connects it to the blood supply in the neck. Uh, so that, you know, the tissue lives on its own, you know, you can kind of put it anywhere and then it'll survive. And so it, 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 it's meant to preserve function in the tongue, you know, rather than you know, cutting this piece out and it scars down and the person can't stick out their tongue or, you know, move it from side to side, they have the tissue in place that allows them to kind of keep normal range of motion and mobility. So speech is better. Uh, swallowing is better. Uh, does result in a more intensive surgery, which is why it's not done at you know, places like St. John's historically. Uh, but we have, you know, we have a kind of an able hospital and an able team, and, and uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of great outcomes on these complex cases. And now a message from our sponsor. The Think Neuro Podcast is brought to you by Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. If you're inspired by what you hear and wish to support our mission of education through innovation, please visit pacificneuro.org slash foundation. Can you, so tongue tissue is, I imagine, very specialized tissue. Can you, you can replace it with something else and maintain function? You can to a certain extent. Now, if you get too big, uh, then you you know you replace it with something else, but the function is not as good. So um, you know, that's kind of a rare situation, but it happens where someone has a cancer that's really taking over the side of their you know their tongue, and they lose most of their tongue. You know, we can still reconstruct that, but uh, you know that native you get, you need some of that native tongue tissue to mm. um, to move properly and, and swallow properly. So. Yeah, that, that's a really uh, kind of terrible uh, situation that comes up from time to time where someone needs a more radical procedure like that. So, you know, in, in head neck cancer, we have everything from, you know, very curable, you know, patient uh, comes out a month later and they look, talk, swallow exactly the same as they went in. And then we have, you know, situations that, uh, you know, patients have to choose between something difficult and something else difficult. And, 
it's something else difficult. So that with a lot of cancer surgery, that's how it ends. So you did that procedure or it's coming up? That one's coming up. Uh, we have a, a prodded cancer. So prodded is a salivary gland inside of your face. So that one's a, kind of a totally different um, you know, set of problems. And that patient is going to you know, probably go home you know, either that same night after surgery or the day following and mm. did you really well. And, um, uh, you know, and then I've had some, uh, some detective type cases this week where I had a guy with a, a neck mass and I was you know, trying to identify the primary. So I took him to surgery and you know, put scopes in his mouth and minimally invasive, you know, kind of uh, expedition to find this very small cancer um, so that he can uh, receive appropriate treatment um, what was the what was the clue that he he had a cancer? Well, you know this this guy had uh, you know a neck mass the size of a softball, so there was a it was a pretty big clue. He came in and he just wanted that thing out. He was like, "Oh, take this thing out," but you know this is a yeah. You know, I had to you know, I had to take him through the appropriate steps. You know, this is part of the job. If someone comes in, they think they want one thing, but you, know, you have to educate patients and really understand their um their expectations and their you know, needs and concerns and you know emotional response to having something like this and their family situation and and you know help them to you know kind of follow the best treatment plan for them it's not that not always the best you know, set of uh, steps for everyone but um it's, very it's, it's not just a case i mean you up did you take the whole thing out no, so that's that's the thing is I told this guy, I said, you know, you don't want me to take this whole thing out. I can do that, but there are better ways to treat this. So, you know, not everybody, I'm a surgeon, but not everybody needs surgery. And so really my job is to use surgery appropriately for patients that you know have a good chance of cure from surgery and that won't experience too much morbidity, and and for patients that don't have better non-surgical treatment opportunities. So, uh, you know, maybe half of the patients that come in with head and neck cancer, um, you know, diagnosis, I don't operate on because I, I have something better for them, either, uh, you, know, uh, you know, immunotherapy or uh, chemo, you know, kind of systemic therapy-based treatment or radiation-based treatment. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it really uh, requires a lot of communication with patients, their family, other specialists that treat head and neck cancer. And, and as the head and neck, you know, in, in head and neck surgery, the surgeon is kind of the quarterback. Uh, other specialties, you know, the medical oncologist really is the one who kind of drives, drives the ship and you know, does a lot of the um, kind of decision, you know, big picture decision making, but in head and neck cancer, because so many of you know, the, the treatments respond to, you know, surgery, it's the surgeon. So not to get hung up on this, but was this large tumor um benign no it wasn't it was not but still there's a way to there was there's still a way to treat it that was non-surgical right so you know this is this is kind of an extreme case but it's it's a tumor like that uh, in this guy's case was best treated with chemo and radiation so he's getting you know pretty heavy duty chemo and radiation you know the reason for that is is that um you know, had I done this big operation for him, um, I would have taken it out and uh, the pathology would come back and, and we all would have looked at it and said, okay, you now you need chemo and radiation, right? And so, it, it you know, there, I would not be able to save him, you know, any of the toxicity of the treatment that's, that, he, that he's going to need. And it would have, you know, created some problems with him having, having a, a neck tumor that larger root. So, 
Um, I, you know, it took a long time to help the patient understand, you know, people want, sometimes want an easy solution and they, you know, have trouble understanding the gravity of the situation. So, you know, it's, it's always the, the kind of human, emotional, social elements of uh, really any job that, that are challenging sometimes. And that's no different when you're talking about head and neck cancer. Sure. And, and I think people's, um, like you say, their, their reflexes just get this thing out of me. Yeah. And sometimes I can do that. And it's great. And sometimes right. we, we have to you know, be methodical. Yeah. That's a fascinating one. Yeah. Yeah. So you see that you'll see skin cancers, you'll see um, salivary glands, you'll see tongue, you'll see just anything that's um, in that area again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so what, how many days are you operating and how many days are you doing clinic generally? You know, it's a mix. Uh, it's generally kind of um, one to two days of surgery and uh, two to three days of clinic. And then I spend, uh, you know, one day every week just kind of building this program, doing research, uh, mm-hmm. kind of collaborating with our medical oncologists and our kind of uh, scientists over at the Cancer Institute. Um, so, uh, you know, putting together you know, tumor boards and, and various presentations that I have to do. So that's, What's a tumor uh, board? So a tumor board is when uh, all uh, kind of providers that take care of head and neck cancer get together and uh, run through cases, um, you know, all kind of you know, present the patient. And, uh, and so then, you know, you know, everyone sees the CT scans and the pathology and the images. And, you know, it gives everybody a chance to say, this is what I would, this is what I think is the right decision here. And uh, it, it really just kind of allows for kind of a real-time uh, you know, decision. And so, uh, you know, patients get, get presented and radiation oncologists and medical oncologists and myself, speech language pathology and sometimes social worker are all there to kind of weigh in and, you know, put the patient's kind of social situation together with, you know, their tissue diagnosis and staging and kind of run through, uh, run through treatment options. So okay. it's something that, uh, right, that right now is kind of built out of the, uh, the brain tumor board because, you know, I'm hired through PNI and, and you know, there's a, a robust brain tumor board where uh, a lot of these people get together. And, and, and one of the near-term goals is to shift this into a uh, head and neck uh, focused, uh, dedicate, rather a dedicated head and neck tumor board in the next few months. So we've been working on all the accreditation and things like that, that we need to do that at the hospital. So that's a, that's an exciting thing that uh, I think will serve as a good resource, not only for patients in Santa Monica, but because now post pandemic, everything is virtual uh, for all the hospitals in, in Southern Providence, Providence hospitals in Southern California. So, uh, you know, there's not a lot of subspecialty care uh, in our hospital system, even though it's a huge system. You know, I think it's the third largest hmm. um, in the U S um, I think there's only one other program in, uh, in the Providence system that's doing, you know, something kind of resembling full service head and neck cancer care. And it's way down in South Orange County. So, oh, wow. um, you know, we we're, we're offering kind of some core resources that, uh, you know, other you know, surgeons and you know, medical oncologists uh, can use, you know, you know, both, you know, intellectual resources and also, you know, pathology specialty, uh, you know, services that you know really shareable. Uh, in our kind of connected uh, post-pandemic world. And so I, I really think, you know, my goal is to uh, create a conference that really will kind of elevate public health in our region and, you know, for head and neck cancer patients. Yeah, modeled on the brain tumor 
Yeah. 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 Which is a, a great model. Um, I saw in your bio that you do work on cancers caused by HPV or human papilloma virus. Yes. Is that right. Yes, that's right. I, you know, I know this is, there's been lots of research on this and it's established now, but I think it's so fascinating that viruses cause cancer. I'm still blown away by yeah. that. Well, yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting story in head and neck cancer because, um, you know, uh, traditional head and neck cancer is caused by, you know, heavy smoking and, and to some extent drinking. And uh, in California and uh, in particular, and in the last several decades, there's been a decline and smoking rates. And so, uh, you know, all the head and neck surgeons uh, are, you know, getting gray and they're saying, oh, well, this business is going to dry up. There's going to be no head and neck cancer. No one's smoking anymore. And as soon as, you know, the numbers kind of start to decrease and uh, with smoking, there's this really epidemic of HPV related cancer. So um, there's, there's been a, somewhere around a 300% increase in the last several decades of uh, cancers, you know, driven by the HPV virus. And so now, uh, if you, someone comes in with a, a base of tongue uh, tonsil cancer, the number is somewhere around 70% of those are, are caused by the HPV virus. Um, 30 years ago, you know, basically all of them were caused by smoking and drinking. So it's, you know, the, um, the, uh, there's been a parallel decline in smoking and a rise in HPV. And this, I mean, this is, um, we'll try to keep this PG rated here, but... This is caused by oral sex? Oral sex. So uh, number of oral sex partners is the new number of packs you smoked per year. You know, in the past, someone came in and, and, and said, you know, they had cancer and you, you would basically ask them, I mean, are you a smoker? And the answer would be yes. Uh, you know, now I, I, you know, I don't necessarily need to ask all of my patients their sexual history. But if you have an HPV-related cancer, then, you know, that's, that's where you got it. Now, you know, most adults or basically all adults have been exposed um, at some point in their life to the HPV uh, virus. It's very prevalent. Very prevalent. Very okay. Prevalent. And there's a vaccine, right? And there's a vaccine. And so the, uh, the Gardasil vaccine has, has, has been around for uh, some time now. And, uh, you know, initially a, a decade ago, it was, uh, there was pretty low rates of, of vaccination, but uh, that's that's changing and it's improving. And so uh, now both boys and girls are getting the HPV vaccine. Now, the interesting thing is, is um, HPV, uh, head and neck cancer caused by HPV virus is different than cervical cancer. So uh, cervical cancer, it takes probably 10 years or less to go from an infection to a cervical cancer. So a little bit easier to study, a little bit faster effect from, you know, introduction of vaccine to declining rates of cervical cancer, and that's been well studied. Head and neck cancers caused by HPV take decades to develop. So people are coming in in their 70s, and the cancers that they're having are a result of their sexual behaviors 30 years ago or more. And so uh, it's, a, it's kind of a decades-long process to develop a, um, a head and neck cancer from the HPV virus. All right. This might be a stupid question. Does the vaccine protect you against head and neck cancers? Uh, the answer is yes. So okay. we, we don't have the direct evidence that they have in, in cervical cancer. But really? Well, because, because it takes so long that, you know, there's, 
you know, only, only recently, I would say, have, have there been kind of, you know, multi, you know, million patient cohort studies, you know, a particular country looks at their vaccination rates and their cervical cancer rates and shows a decline. I mean, that, you know, that data has only recently come out. For head and neck cancer, we don't have direct evidence that it prevents head and neck cancer, but, um, you know, we have indirect evidence from cervical cancer and from other population-based type studies. Okay. So get the vaccine. Get the vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> get the vaccine. And now, is that a one and done in your lifetime or do you have to go back? Uh, it's a series of three shots. So three. Yeah. So it's three, uh, three vaccines. And, and, and most people, as, as I said, get it around the age of, you know, kind of 10, 11, 12, I think it's the, the time frame. Okay. And is it three, like kind of bunched together? Is that, I can't remember. Uh, I believe it's over six or nine months. Yeah. So okay. That's I remember I, my kids got it and I remember yeah. coming back to me. Oh, so your kids got it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, we're, we love vaccines around here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so interesting. So you're seeing, I mean, you're seeing, this is a result of behaviors from years ago. Yeah. Before anybody knew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what is the, so it takes a long time for these to develop decades. It sounds like. How, what, how do they turn up and what's their, how do they progress? Well, so uh, another difference uh, between cervical cancer caused by HPV and, you know, tonsil basic thumb cancer is that there is no precursor lesion that we can screen for. So, you know, women obviously go into pap smears and things mm-hmm. like this. And, and you know, the gynecologist can pick up these precancerous lesions and prevent cervical cancer. But unfortunately, there's no such thing in the head and neck. So uh, you can't, you know, do little biopsy things or you know, tissue biopsies or blood tests uh, right now. There, you know, there, there are some, uh, some screening things, but nothing is ready for prime time yet. You know, there's HPV DNA you can get in the blood, uh, but, but, you know, none of these things really have, are cost-effective or, you know, can really kind of, pr- you know, proven that they can result in better outcomes if you do it. So for now, there's, uh, there's no there's real screening for HPV-related cancer. Interesting. So Unfortunately. You, you, something develops in your mouth and you're like, what's this? And that's... Yeah, well, you know, usually something develops in your neck. <laughs> so um, the HPV-related cancers tend to spread early to lymph nodes. And so uh, patients will typically come in with a neck mass and, uh, and they'll, you know, they don't even know that there's anything wrong with their throat. You know, they probably have a small cancer back there that is not causing them pain or swallowing difficulties. Um, and so a neck mass is, is a common presentation. And it's usually someone who's, you know, compared to a traditional head and neck cancer patient who came by their cancer through years of smoking, they're typically younger, uh, you know, higher socioeconomic status, higher level, levels of education, typically a non-smoker, although smoking is still a risk for Developing HPV related cancers, um, and it uh, tends to be more men than women. So that's that's kind of the typical customer who comes in. Yeah, you know, I knew a guy up here, an acquaintance of mine, who he he got an HPV cancer and it killed him. <laughs> and wow. what is the prognosis? I mean, does, I guess it depends on how far along it is. It does depend on uh, how far along it is, and you know, there's a subset of tumors that behave badly. Are more aggressive, but in general, the prognosis is much better compared with traditional head and neck cancer. So it is. Much better. 
Uh, so this was established uh, approximately 2010. There was a big New England Journal paper that came out that uh, you know was looking at hundreds of patients, and they were doing the study uh, really to uh, compare radiation treatments for head and neck cancer. But you know uh, the uh, kind of easy ways to detect HPV tumors had been discovered, and so they uh, took all the orpharynx cancers, which means the tonsils and the base of the tongue where HPV. Uh, tends to cause cancer, and they they divided them into those caused by HPV and not. And so, you know, they were able to show a, a huge difference in survival outcome with non-surgical treatments in those patients that had a cancer caused by the HPV virus. So this really set off, you know, this was a, a you know huge news in the head and neck cancer world um, that you know, HPV tumors have a markedly better prognosis, and it led to. Uh, and it's still an ongoing uh, quest to de-intensify treatments and, and, you know, take full, you know, traditional kind of chemo radiation, which is fairly toxic and has a lot of bad side effects and pare it down just the right amount so that, you know, you preserve those very high rates of cure, but you decrease some of the long-term side effects like difficulty swallowing, for example, mm. osteoradionephrosis, the jaw, which are, you know, kind of the kind of ongoing nagging, uh, you know, side effects and complications that you get from radiation treatment. Sure. Well, that's, there's, there's good news. That's great news. Yeah, good news. All it's right. It's been so, a difficult quest, but uh, it's, yeah. it's ongoing. Yeah, that's fascinating. So last thing, you mentioned smoking. Yes. What, what kind of a risk factor is alcohol when it comes to, to for, I imagine it's throat. It's, it's less. Um, it's not quite as strong of a risk factor as you know, smoking or HPV infection, it's, uh, but it, it does contribute. And it seems like alcohol, when you're smoking, seems to amplify the effects of to a small degree. This is, a, you know, forgive me on this question. Does it matter if you're drinking what kind of alcohol you're drinking? Mm, I, or is anybody know? So, I don't have the science there. I don't yeah. think it matters, but I don't, I don't have the science there. So. Said the guy who likes beer and wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you're it's safe. just, it's, it's I super, I mean, there's, there's, you know, but there's all this research about alcohol and cancer. That's pretty, you know, pretty damning. Yeah. I mean, not just, not necessarily of the throat, but a lot. Yeah. Of no, I, I've, I know what you're referring to. I've seen some of the, you know, kind of new times, you know, articles yeah. reported on this and things like it's uh, one of these areas where um, people change their, the, the experts change their mind from you know, yes. decades, right? You know, alcohol is good for you or alcohol is maybe not so good for you or maybe we don't know. Right. So Yeah. I mean, before it was like, Oh yeah. Red wine, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And now not so much. So interesting. Yeah, maybe not so much. Um, well, this has been really interesting. We got to do this again. Um, Absolutely. You're seeing a lot of really interesting stuff. And um, we really thank you for coming on here. And I'm sure in the future, you know, keep us in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Really fun yeah. conversation. All right. A pleasure. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Walgama. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.